All right, so again, Psalm 78, looking at verses 34 through 72, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to turn to a lot of passages today, but I've entitled this message, Contend, and I want to begin by defining the word contend, it's to strive or fight for something. So contend is an active word, it's, it's going after something, and as I've mentioned several times of late, and I'll mention it again, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, it's one of my favorite characters, right? And he actually has to contend. And if you're familiar with this story, he, he actually has this inner conflict because he's, a, he's afraid that he's going to fail like his forebears failed. And, and so he's wrestling with that. And there's an opportunity for him to be passive. There's an opportunity for him to just hide away, to kind of live his life away from the spotlight, or to be active and to embrace the destiny to which he's called. And so I would encourage each one of us as Christians to fight for something, but not to fight for anything, to fight for the faith. And so with this in mind, would you hold on to Psalm 78 and actually turn to the next to last book of the Bible, and that's Jude. Now, it may be generous to call it a book. It's more like a postcard. Um, It's a little letter here of Jude, easy to miss, right before the book of Revelation. Um, It's probably one one and a half to two pages in your Bible, something like that. And so what we have Jude, and so Jude is where I really get this idea where the Lord brought me for this contending for the faith. As I was working through the Psalms and to give you kind of a little insight in what I do, when I put together a Bible study, I don't start with my introduction. I just leave a blank space. And I start working through the passage and see where the Lord is leading me. And so as I work through this passage, that word just contend came into my mind. And so I I want to, by way of introduction, look at what Jude had to say here in verses 1 through 4 as he's writing this letter to believers. Notice Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude was actually a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same mother, different father. And so James as well was a half-brother, and that's James who was head of the early church there in Jerusalem. So Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. Sorry you guys didn't get my joke about saying mom, different dad, but maybe later. (laughs) Ask somebody about it, and they'll explain it to you. Uh, It says, to those who are called, sanctified by God and the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Can you know how much different in the first two verses? This kind of introduction is kind of somewhat familiar we see with our letters in the New Testament. But notice what he says in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. In other words, he wanted to write a letter encouraging the believers and kind of talking about kind of what I would say normal Christian things. He said this, I found it necessary. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. So he wanted to write them a letter, kind of, I guess, talking about what, again, like I said, kind of normal, quote-unquote, Christian things, and then he felt led by the Lord, I got to talk to these people about fighting for the faith. I got to talk to them about contending, to strive for the faith, because here's the reason why he felt compelled. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, here it is, who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness. That word lewdness means lustfulness or just illicit behavior. And he says, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the things that we're enduring, the things that we're going through um, in Christianity are not anything new. 
So men from the beginning have come in and said, well, God's grace, well, God's grace means you can do whatever you want. The church in Corinth, well, well, there's God's grace. So if we sleep with prostitutes, that's no big deal. That doesn't affect us. That's only our body. That doesn't affect our spirit. So this has always been something to contend for. So we have to remember that because there's a tendency for us as Christians to adopt a siege mentality. To say, oh, the world's all against us. Let's kind of form Christian ghettos. Let's build the walls higher. Let's go inward within ourselves and not engage culture and not engage people and not go out there and say, I'm going to tell you the truth in love. So it's very important for us to do that. And that's what Paul is, I'm sorry, Jude is calling us to. And that's what I believe that the Lord is calling us to, even as we move through Psalm 78. So would you turn now to Psalm 78? As we seek to look through this passage, contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to us. So to give you a little bit of context, remind, I want to remind you that the psalmist has been talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you're familiar with the Israelites in the wilderness, it went poorly. It didn't go well. And so if you, if you missed last week's study, I would encourage you to listen online to kind of get caught up. Um, but we have the Israelites in the wilderness. So I just want to back up just two verses and see verses 32 and 33 there to give us a little bit of context as we move in. It says, in spite of this, they still sinned. In other words, in spite of all that God provided, all that he did, notice, and did not believe in his wondrous works, therefore their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. So after all that God provided, you know, the, the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, um, the manna every day, the water from the, the rock, the quail, uh, the, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. All of those things, they still went against it. But then as we move into verse 34 and 35, it seems to be a shift. Look, when, and when he slew them, then they sought him and they returned and sought earnestly for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Awesome. Let's go ahead and close the Bible there and we'll just go home for today. And you're saying, my luck could not be better. Sorry, I'm keeping you here for now. This seems great, but unfortunately, we're going to see it was very short lived. Okay, what we have in verses 34 and 35 are what you and I have probably done. We didn't study for a test in high school or college. Lord, if you just let me pass this test. From now on, I will study. I will be diligent. I will always do my things. We have those kind of moments, right? We're in a difficult situation. We promise to God that things are going to be different this time. We're going to do things differently. And so what happens, we, we kind of obey for just a moment, but then we fall right back. And that's what we're going to see here. I, I love what one commentator had to say about this. He said, quote, As iron is very soft and malleable while in the fire, but soon after returns to its former hardness, so many, while afflicted, seem very well affected, but afterwards soon show what they are. So that's the attitude here. So when God really kind of put his, his thumb down on the people, they, they repented temporarily, but it was only because of the pressure. It was not because of a change of heart, and they just went back. So this reminded me of something from John chapter 2. So would you turn, and, I, and again, I warned you ahead of time, if you want to turn, turn with me. Your arm's going to be tired at the end. Uh, John chapter 2, we want to look at verses 23 through 25. Those of you guys who went to Awanas growing up, you know, just see Bible drill going back and forth real quick. John 2, starting in verse 23, read these words. Says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, 
during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Again, that seems like good news. But I would argue in context, this belief is, is not like a heart change. It, it's just kind of a surface level. And we see this often in the Gospel of John. Notice, and this is why I, I believe that, verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. That's interesting, that word commit is the word for believe, okay, or to put trust in. So Jesus didn't put trust in his crowds. Notice why. He says, because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, these people were swayed because Jesus was kind of the new miracle worker in town and he was doing some exciting things and they were all on board for him. They were kind of that emotion, you know, kind of that motion you might feel when you go to a rock concert, right? And there's all this euphoria and that emotion and that moment. But then once you go back home and a few hours pass, that emotion kind of goes away, it drains away. And that's what we have here. And, and so you, you think about it, something very similar on Palm Sunday, what happened on Palm Sunday is that Jesus comes into town, triumphal entry, everyone's praising Jesus and Hosanna, all of this stuff. What happens, I would argue many of those same people on Good Friday, just a few days later, were the same ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. So we have this emotion. So we have to be careful about being believers who base what we do, how we live on the emotions of the moment, on the circumstances we're in kind of this thing of like, well, God, as long as you set everything up just the way I want it to be, I'm going to serve you. But Lord, if you get out of line and you bring into my life trouble and difficulty and hardship or sickness, then, then I'm going back to the world. You can't hold God hostage. <laughs> you, you can't make demands of God. There's a, uh, God, you know, like there's the old saying, the U.S., and I don't know how well they actually live up to it, but it's like we don't negotiate with terrorists. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. We can't say, oh, God, I'm just going to manipulate you. No, 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 we can't do those things. And so that's what was happening with the Israelites. So with this in mind, we turn back now to Psalm 78. We'll move on to verses 36 and 37, and we see that this, this supposed repentance was very short-lived. Notice, nevertheless, here it is, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. So again, it was just a surface level commitment. Why was it surface level? Because it was all about themselves. It wasn't about the Lord. It, it was about what they wanted, what they were getting out of it, and their situation, and their circumstance. And as long as we, even as born-again believers, make life about our circumstances, our situations, how we feel in the moment, we are going to be like these small ships tossed in a large sea. It's going to be very, very up and down. And so uh, this is Jesus, Jesus quoted this, but I'm going to actually go back to the original. Isaiah 29, verse 13, I'll read it for you says this, these people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. So we always remind ourselves, like what God wants most from you is your heart. Okay, it's great for you to do good works. It's great for me to, I believe the Lord's called me to, to speak the truth of the word of God. But if I'm even speaking the truth, but my heart is not with it, God's not pleased with it. And so what God really wants from us is our hearts. And here's the great thing about that. If we give our hearts totally to God, the rest will follow. 
Wherever your heart goes, the rest of you will follow. Your behavior will follow. Your thoughts will follow. All those things will follow. But it starts with the heart. All right, let's move on now to verse 38. It says, uh, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up his wrath. So even though the people's heart was far from him and though they were disobeying, over and over again, God forgave them and the people did not consume them. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you're reminded that on many times, God says, hey, I'm going to destroy the people and Moses intercedes. Moses steps in. So we might say, well, God wanted to take them out, but Moses is the, really the one who, who loved the people. And then we just have to remind ourselves, who in the world was it that raised up Moses? Hmm. Who was the one who called Moses? Who was the one who put them in the place? So what God is doing is, yes, God is showing that if there's not an intercessor, that people are destined for destruction. But he's the one who raised up Moses. Why? It's Moses prefigures Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who intercedes for us at the cross, takes all of our, the punishment we deserved upon himself, and because he's there, that we can be forgiven. So that's what we have to do and look through the scriptures and, and, and get in there and dig deep and say, well, what is God showing me here? What is he revealing here? He's saying, without an intercessor, I deserve God's just judgment. I deserve his wrath. But the good news is an intercessor has come for me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to, to understand these things. And so the question for, for you and I to ask as we look at this, because it's very easy for me, and I do this all too often, oh, those, those dumb Israelites in the wilderness. Man, if I'd been there, I'd have been a little different. <laughs> I'd love that manna every day, right? Well, I'd have that attitude. But then I have to just ask myself, how many times has God turned his wrath away from me? How many times? I'm going to share with you guys on, on last Wednesday through a, a number of events, I had this incredibly busy day. I was filling in for another tutor. And so I, I just, you know, our, our school that we teach at is a kind of a college, a kind of college scheduling. So you're not in class every hour. So it turned out that I was in class every single hour that day. And I had two hours of Kierkegaard, then one hour of apologetic stuff, and then I had an hour of rhetoric, and then I had a staff lunch, and then I had an hour of revelation, and then an hour of BSM. And when I got to the end of that day, and as I sat back on my chair, I just thought, this is one of the best days I've ever lived. I just loved it. It was an incredible day. It was an awesome day. And I just loved every moment of that, going through different things and talking with students. It was incredible. But then the thought came to me was, how many horrible things have I done in my life? How many bad things have I done? How many ways have I sinned? How many wrong decisions and mistakes have I made? And yet God let me have this day. I just couldn't believe it because God somehow worked all things together that I would have this glorious day. And, and don't think that it's, it's been the only glorious day. I've had many glorious days. It's just the most recent one. And to think that for all of my faults and failures and rebellions and sins and disobedience and righteousness, God says, I'm going to give you a day like this. That's a God that we serve. That's a kind of... Being that he is, he is absolutely incredible. So I would, I would hope that you would hold on to that. Because often we do this thing of like, well, if I'm good enough, then God will do these things. No, what God says, even though you're not good enough, I'm going to do these things. It's always better to walk in obedience. Please don't mishear me. 
that's what God, you, you can have better relationships and better witness and all those things through obedience, but that doesn't make God work, okay? God is gracious and loving and kind and wants to do these wonderful things in our lives. Let's move on to verse 39. It says, for he remembered that they were flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Now, the commentators added that they were, they were but flesh. Now, we have to be careful how that, because once I was in a worship setting and the guy emphasized it the wrong way, and he says, Lord, I remember that we're all butt flesh. So he said it that way, and I'll be honest, because I'm very, a very immature person, and all my friends that were pastors are very immature, we had a hard time making through that worship session, because we were just laughing about that. I see that you guys are much more mature. You don't think it's that funny. Uh, we, sh- we shouldn't laugh about butts in church. God made butts. All right, so don't get too upset about the whole deal. All right, so what, what he's saying, though, in verse 39 is that humans have a short time to live in this world, okay, and that God recognizes that, and that God has compassion on us in our frailty. And so for more on this, would you turn with me to Psalm 103 for just a moment? Psalm 103, I want to look at verses 6 through 18. Starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever, nor has he dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. I love that in verse 10, right? God hasn't, hasn't dealt with us as we should be dealt with. All right, God's been gracious and merciful to us. He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, to those who remember his commandments to do them. And so what we're reminded of here is just what we're seeing there in Psalm 78, is that, that our lives here on earth, though we may try to pretend like they're going to keep on going on, that they're really short. It's for a very short season. But, but you know, there's two ways to take something that's short. We can say, well, this thing's very short, therefore it's not valuable. Okay? You know, it's just something to throw away. But that's not how God sees it. God sees it's very short and it's invaluable. Okay, that, that it's extremely valuable, that it's priceless. And so, so there's that, that uh, tension for us as believers to realize, okay, I'm wanting to go to heaven. I'm wanting to be with the Lord Jesus. I'm wanting to spend time with him. I wanted to be with him forever. I want all of those things, but I shouldn't just seek to fast forward this life that God has given me because there are precious moments here. Not, not precious moments like those porcelain figures, uh, but, but wonderful moments. You guys are going to have to stay with me today. Um, with, with, where we have that are just wonderful. So yesterday I was invited to go watch a, a little youth soccer game. So I went to it. Apparently they're about to have a youth soccer game right there. Um, and it was wonderful to watch. 
And as I just sat there with no responsibilities other than to enjoy these eight little guys (laughs) trying to score goals, it was beautiful. It was just a wonderful moment to realize that. And so sometimes in the midst of our difficulties and hardships and hurts in life, we can just say, I'd be better if, if, if this were all wrapped up. It'd be better if it was just all over. And then you actually take a moment to enjoy something that's just going to happen once and to see that. And you're reminded, this is, there's good in this world. And I was reminded again of a quote from Lord of the Rings, as I often am, you know, that there is still good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Okay, that's what we do when we contend. There's still good in this world and I'm going to keep fighting for it. All right, let's go back to Psalm 78, verses 40 through 42. It says, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel, and they did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the enemy. And uh, yeah, let's stop right there, from the enemy. Okay, so there are three words that I want to look at here. Okay, and the three words, well, the first word is provoked. We see that there in verse, let's see, verse 40, they provoked him, okay? So that word provoked means to be contentious, to be rebellious, to be disobedient. So we see that and we say, well, what's the remedy? How how, how do I not provoke God? The remedy is to simply obey. Simply obey. Even if you don't understand, just obey. that's That's our main Uh, kind of the rub with God is we say, well, I'll obey God if I understand what he's doing. That's not really obeying. That's really just agreeing. Okay, obeying says God tells me to do this. It goes against what I desire, and I'm just going to do it anyway. That's obedience. Okay, obedience is not, yeah, you know, God and I, we're just, we're kind of on the same page about everything. No, when God tells me, Steve, I want you to deny yourself take up your cross and follow me. I don't agree with that in my passions, but I'm called to obey it because that's what he says. So instead of being rebellious to God, simply obey. Okay, the second word here is tempted. It says they tempted him. That word tempted means to put to the test or to mistrust, to doubt God's character. What is the remedy? Simply trust him. (laughs) Simply trust him. And, And so in other words, just say to yourself, I don't know the right answer. He says this is the right answer. I'm just going to trust him. I'm just going to trust him. And so when we do that, when we walk in that, that simple obedience of trust, we'll find that we're not going to be tempting him. We're not going to mistrust him. The third word here is really forget. It's, it's phrased do not remember um, or did not remember, but I'm going to change it to forget here. And it means to forget means to not call to mind. To, so when we forget something, like if we, we see uh, someone that we haven't seen for years, we for, have forgotten their name a lot of times because we haven't used it regularly, right? It hasn't been a name that's been called to mind. And so it's kind of lost somewhere. That happens to us with God. So when we don't call to mind what God wants, who he is, what he's about, we don't choose to remember, then we're going we're gonna to forget that. So the remedy is focus on what God's done. If you want to not forget, you're going to have to remember, choose to, be active about it. So the, 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 here's the key. The more we focus on what God has done, the better our mental, emotional, and spiritual state will be. Uh, the, the verse that I've used a bunch for you guys, and I use it again, I actually didn't put it into this, but it's Philippians 4.8. Right? Whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are just, meditate on these things. We constantly meditate 
on ungodly, unrighteous, evil things, and we wonder, why am I depressed? Why am I upset? Why am I despondent? Because we're looking at the bad, right? So let's turn to Psalm chapter 1 for just a moment. Don't worry, guys. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. All right, Psalm chapter 1. I want to look at verses 1 through 3. All right, so this is, this is how you can live a blessed life. Like you as a human being created in God's image, and by the way, you're created in God's image, Genesis 1, verse 26, tells you that. This is how you can live a blessed life. Notice, blessed is the man, and again, it's in the context of person, so it could be man or woman. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Here's a negative progression. You're walking with them, then you're standing with them, then you're sitting in judgment with them. Okay, it's a, prog- a negative progression. So the counsel is, is the wisdom of the ungodly, right? How the ungodly does stuff. It's the way of the world. It's how business is done. It's, it's what majority of people think. It's all of that. So it starts with, with saying, I'm not going to walk in their counsel. I'm not going to stand with them. I'm not going to sit in judgment with them. So I'm going to do something different. So it's not enough to just say, just say no. That's the just say no campaign failed miserably. If you don't know, drugs are still a thing. Okay? It failed miserably. Why? Well, just don't do that thing. Well, you, you can't just tell a person don't do that. You have to give them something to actually do, something to be active about. And here it is. Verse 2, but his delight, his desire, what he loves is in the law of the Lord. That doesn't happen to anyone automatically. You don't just go to the Bible and like, man, this is the best. It actually takes time in it for it to become your delight. And here's how it is. Notice, and in his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, that becomes his focus, his passion, his desire, her focus, her passion, her desire. That happens as you and I, it will become our delight as we meditate on it day and night with an aim to obeying it. If you go to the word of God and you meditate on it day and night and you're going to fight it every day, here's what you're going to do. You're going to come out with a bloody nose. Because you can hit your head against the word of God over and over and over and over again, but what's going to happen is the word of God's going to win every time. You can try to manipulate, you can try to work it, you're just going to be frustrated and, and, and no, no peace. But if you come to it and say, I'm willing to obey it, I'm willing to do what it says, it will become the love of your life. The, the Lord will, will speak to you through it. Notice, here's, here's the incredible fruitfulness that happens, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper this amazing fruitfulness that comes out of a life dedicated to what god has said through his word and so it's wonderful and i would argue that there are countless examples of men and women of God who have dedicated themselves to this, and you see their incredible fruitfulness. You, you see the beauty of that. And so, so with this in mind, this promise that we have, would you turn back to Psalm 78? And we'll bite off a little bigger ch- chunk here. We're going to look at verses 43 through 51, and we're really looking at how God's judgment was poured out on Egypt in this section. It says, Then he worked his signs... Uh, When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink, he sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. 
He gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the fiery lightning. He cast them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. He destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt and their first of their strength in the tents of Ham. Okay, so it's as God's judgments poured out on Egypt. The reminder I want to bring out of this section here is that the unrepentant unbeliever is under God's judgment. Okay, that, that's just the reality. The unrepentant unbeliever is under God's judgment. The only way to escape that judgment is to place their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And so for more on this, you, you can turn with me now to Colossians. So let's turn to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3. Can we'll go see what Paul has to say about this. Colossians 3, I want to look at verses 1 through 7. Gentiles eat pork chops. All right, let me remind myself of how about goes. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Okay. So again, thinking about contending for the faith. It's what Paul says to believers. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. So again, speaking to believers, seek those things which are above where Christ is setting, I'm sorry, sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, so that's what we're to do. We're to seek those things that are above. Okay, we're to seek those things where Christ is. We're to distort heavenly rewards. We're to the things, the things about God. We're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to us. And then he says here, again, seeking those things. And then verse two, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So, so it's this active placing of your mind on good things, setting your mind on the things that are above, not on the carnal things of this life. And then he says, for you died, okay, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, you died with him there. And so now live your life with him. You're in Christ, uh, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then here it is, you will also appear with him in glory. So sometimes we have this weird idea that, oh, the glory days. We already had the glory days. You know, in high school, that was the glory days. And, man, I really filled out a letterman jacket back in the day. Right? Those are the glory days. Believe me, beloved, your glory days have not come. Your glory days are coming when you return with Christ, and then you're going to have some glory. Okay? Then you're going to have that resurrected body. You're going to be purified. You're going to be fully sanctified. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. But notice what he says here. Two believers, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He's speaking to believers. He's saying, believers, you could keep on living in sin if you're not seeking those things that are above. You're not setting your mind on Christ. You're not living a, a life of him, Galatians 2.20 type of life. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. It's possible for us as believers to keep living like the world. And so he says, don't do it. Put that to death. And he says, notice verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So, so those who continue living that life in unrepentant sin, they've never placed their faith in Christ. And what's happened is the wrath of God's coming upon them. Notice verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So in other words, don't live like that anymore. 
Don't let that be the habit of your life anymore. That's how you used to walk. Let's do something different. And this is such an important topic as we contend for the faith because there's a push, especially among the Christian church, to change sin to choice, to to change sin to preference. And, And let me just say this. I do not speak from on high. I understand this mentality completely. When I was in college, and God did it in whichever way he does it, he put it upon my life. This, this, was, the, this was kind of the, the, the neon sign in my head. Your whole life is wrong. And that was a heavy thing for a 21, a 22-year-old to, to kind of contend with. Wasn't raised in a Christian home, knew a few scattered Christians around, to realize my whole life was wrong that everything I was doing was wrong. My relationships were wrong. My focus was wrong. My direction was wrong. It was all wrong. And here's what happened. I was living an immoral lifestyle at the time. So I, I thought, well, how can I actually start obeying this God that I've been hearing about? I started researching everything. So I actually literally took the Bible that, that I had, and I tried to start looking in the Bible, how can I justify my sexually immoral lifestyle through the scriptures? That's what I literally did. Okay, so I understand this mentality. And over time, I just came to the conclusion, I can't justify what I'm doing. I can't justify my life with what the scripture says. So I have to make a choice. Am I going to live by what this says or by what I say? Now, so the Lord brought me through that. But you know what? Some elements of that haven't changed. Because when, when I am discontent, the scripture tells me godliness with contentment is great gain. I still somehow try to tw- twist my discontent and, and kind of sanctify it. But if I'm honest, I have to say that doesn't fit with what the scripture says. So please understand that, that as, as I'm, I'm speaking against kind of how things are, you know, this, this, this current justification of behavior and let's like make it, make it fit in the scriptures, what we have to understand is what's right? Are my desires right or is the scripture right? And I believe that if we try to conform the scriptures to our desire, we're going to find ourselves in, in a very bad place. Because please understand me, all of us are sinners by nature. Every single person has been born a sinner. Every single person has different sin bents. We all have wrong desires. Even as a believer, I still have wrong desires. But if I just say, well, my desires, because they're strongly felt, are okay, that is not true. When when I am very, very angry and I lash out at a family member, I can't say, well, I'm just a passionate person. I'm just a person who's, you know, just short-fused. No, I'm a sinner who has a sin bent toward wrath. And that's wrong. I can't justify it. So it's important for us to understand that because there is a push, a significant push to rewrite Christian morality, to rewrite the scriptures, to change things. But, but here's what I read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord says this, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And theological circles, that's spoken of as God's immutability, that God can't change. Because here's why God can't change. If God is perfect and he changes, he's no longer perfect. He's no longer God. God can't change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So sin is still sin. Nothing has changed. And we've been warned that people will turn from the truth. So for more on this, would you turn a little further to your right to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
Solomon warned us that there's, there's truly nothing new under the sun. And so 2 Timothy warns us that this is how it's going to be. Now, as, as you're turning there and as I'm contending for these things, please understand that I don't, I, I truly don't view people who are, are, are deceived into wrong things as like the enemy in the sense of like, ah, oh, I just, I just I can't stand you and I hate you and all this. No, no, I, I speak these things. I speak this truth because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be lost in a life of sin where I believe there is no way that I could ever be different. There is no way that I could ever be delivered. And God did that for me. And so, as it's been well said in the past, I'm just um, one starving person telling another starving person where they can find bread. (laughs) That's what it means to be a believer. Okay, so 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's last letter, he's warning Timothy about the things that are going to happen. He says this, he says, all scripture, so we're 2 Timothy 3, starting verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, maybe complete and thoroughly equipped. All right, so that's, that's my heart, that, that whatever we do here at this church, whatever I do in my life, it needs to be come out of the foundation of scripture. What does scripture say? Okay. And then he says, and I, I love this scene. So, so let, let the kind of it play in your mind. What, what Paul is doing here as we move into verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, is he's essentially calling uh, like this, this public witness. And he's, he's, he's putting Timothy, if you will, on the witness stand. And he's bringing a charge against him. And he's bringing God the Father and God the Son as witnesses to this. And this is what he's charging uh, Timothy with. This is Timothy's commission. I charge you, therefore... Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, so he calls God the Father and God the Son to witness to this, who will judge the living and the dead at the appearing and the kingdom. Here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And then he says this, for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Okay. So this is the the strong charge to to keep preaching the word, stick to the scriptures. And he says, here's what's going to happen. But here's what happens for us sometimes. We get lost in verses 3 and 4. We get lost there and we, we get on and we're like, well, let me make a blog post about this and let me talk about how bad things are and, and let me complain online and let me do all those things. We get lost in that. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say stick at three and four. He says, here's what you do with three and four. Verse five, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And, and so that word fulfill, it means to carry through to the end. Carry your ministry on through the end. So this beautiful exhortation, and I would argue to some extent every single believer is to have a part in this. Now, you may never be a preacher or those kind of things, and that's absolutely fine. But whatever God's called you to, be that witness. Push forward in that. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to this a little bit later as I'm running low on time. But the exhortation for us is to stay the course, stay faithful to God and his word. With this in mind, though, would you turn now to Galatians chapter 1? Galatians chapter 1, so back left a little bit, okay? 
and to, to remind ourselves that this coming in of these different gospels is not something new. Sometimes people kind of get into this thing of like, well, we just need to get back to the early church. <laughs> As if the early church wasn't made up of sinners. And, and so the early church had all its problems. So the church in Galatia, already the gospel was being polluted there by these Judaizers. So this is what Paul says in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. And what I want you to get from it is Paul says, if anybody seeks to change the gospel, then don't listen to them. That's, what, that's the command from Paul. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Please understand that. When a person turns to a false gospel, they're turning away from God. Okay, They're turning away from relationship with God. And, and that's why it's so painful, because God created us to have relationship with him. That's what he desires. It says, to a different gospel, notice, which is not another. In other words, it's not good news. It's not another good news. It's not good news at all. It's bad news. It says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert. That word pervert means to twist, to malform the gospel of Christ. But here it is. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's anathema. Paul's saying, let them be consigned to hell. That's what Paul's saying. It's a radical thing. He says, I've said to you before, so now I say to you again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than that which you have received, let him be accursed. It's radical. That's a radical, radical thing. But we see the strength of contending for the faith, of saying, I love you, but the gospel that you are presenting, I'm not going to allow it here. I'm not going to be a, have it to have a place here because another gospel is no gospel at all. And please remember this. As you're turning back to Psalm 78, I got to say this. It is not loving to lie to people. It is not loving to lie to people. You see, every person aboard the Titanic was taught that this ship is unsinkable. Okay? The ship was not unsinkable. Okay, so when we tell people, hey, do whatever you want, be true to yourself, be authentic to yourself, it's all fine, it's all good, and they end up in hell, it's not loving to them. And it's not only not loving to them, it is traitorous to our God to misrepresent him, to mischaracterize him in that way. All right, let's move on to verses 52 through 55. He says, but he made his own people go forth like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock, and he led them on safely so that they did not fear, and the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy, holy border, the mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made them made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Okay, so escape from Egypt. We, we've, we've wrapped up escaping from Egypt. Now we're fast forwarding to the taking of the promised land. Okay, that's where we are here. Verse 56 now through 58. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers, turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger in their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their carved images. Okay, so we fast forwarded, we've, we've, you know, it's, it's, we've moved through the wilderness, we've moved through Joshua, now we're really in the book of Judges. 
okay, in the book of Judges. And so um, what happened is the Israelites failed to obey in the promised land. They didn't drive out all the Canaanites. They began to imitate the Canaanite practices. We don't have time to turn there, but on your own, you can um, uh, look up Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 23. kind of gives a summary of how they went to the promised land, and they didn't drive out the Canaanites. And so what happened? They began to imitate the Canaanites. They begin to do life just as they did. And that's the exact same danger that Christians have now is, is the world has so much influence, so the Christians just imitate the world. What is the world doing? Where is the world finding fulfillment? What is, what is the, how did the world do things? Let me imitate that, and it's a recipe for disaster. Now we move on to verses 59 through 64. We're going to get into 1 Kings now. He says, God heard this, and he was furious, greatly abhorred Israel. So he forsook the tabernacle at Shiloh, uh, the, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. He also gave his people over to the sword, and he was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men. Their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. If you're interested in what's happening there, you can read on your own First um, Samuel chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 and 11, and so I misspoke earlier and I said First Kings. Actually, I mean the time of the kings. We're in their time with Samuel, and then we move into the time of Saul. And so it's kind of this whole thing, right, under the oppression of the Philistines. But why? What does all of this have to do with it? It's a disobedience toward God. A disobedience toward God always, always leads to oppression. When I, in my own life, choose to say, you know what, I'm going to give myself over to some type of sin, it's bondage every time. It's always bondage. And so that's what we see here over and over again with the Israelites. Um, Verse 65 and 66, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies, and he put them to a perpetual reproach. Now, um, this a mighty man who shouts because of wine, it's not a, a figure of drunkenness. It's like a guy who has like a, a glass of wine, it refreshes him, and he's ready to go out there. That's the attitude here. I believe verses 65 and 66 are a reference to whenever they took the ark um, into the temple of Dagon. Funny story, you should guys look it up on your own. Um, God, God has a little fun with him and ends up breaking Dagon in pieces over time, which was his idol, and, and then he gives the Philistines an interesting and debilitating disease. Um, and you guys are going to read the commentators about that one. I don't want to discuss it right now. All right, verses 67 through 69. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph, did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. Okay. But Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he's established forever. Okay, so God chose Judah as the place where his sanctuary would dwell. So the tabernacle would be there. Okay, and then the temple later would be built by Solomon, and so Jerusalem would become the capital. And so some interesting, interesting things that we see here. And then verses 70 through 72, he says, He also chose David his servant. So as King David took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes uh, that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And so David was chosen by God as Israel's greatest king until the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so it's kind of, if you think about all these things, it's, it's just really this, this, this quick kind of almost like highlights of Israel's history. The psalmist is bringing out certain things, but as we kind of wrap this up before I move into our conclusion, I just want to write, uh, read quickly what one commentator had to say about Israel. It says this, if Israel's record is her shame, God's persistent goodness emerges as her hope and ours for the unfinished story. And so it's beautiful. You think about all the messes of Israel, and yet God did great things. There are many heroes from the nation of Israel. There are many men and women who have been named after the people that we find on these pages. We see that God was able through all of their messes, or in spite of their messes, to bring the greatest person who's ever lived on planet Earth, the Lord Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. So wonderful, wonderful things. So what I want you to do here, right before we move into communion, if you'll, you'll bear with me, I want to have you turn one more place again. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4 again. But I want to kind of finish out that section of the, pas- of the passage. So to encourage you and me to contend earnestly for the faith, I want to look one more time here at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I just want to look at verses 5 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, picking up again in verse 5, reminding this is the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. He says, but you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, carry your ministry on through the end. And he says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I love that word departure. It could be translated exodus. The time of my exodus is at hand. Or it was also used of when you would unmoor a a boat. You know, when your boat's there at dock and you begin to take all the lines in. That's what Paul is saying. The time of my departure is at hand. And here it is. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 